A casket burnt in the open air, funeral homes grappling with overcrowding. A makeshift crematory under construction in Beijing set to house 200 new cremation furnaces. A health department in a Chinese province admitting to large-scale infection for the first time. The death of a Chinese official casting a spotlight on Beijing's darkest secret. We hear from three experts. Could Taiwan defend itself from Beijing with the help of its allies? A think tank breaks it down. And a Chinese spy who publicly defected from Beijing, losing his bid for asylum in Australia. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. First, an update on China's COVID-19 outbreak. With funeral homes across the country overwhelmed by virus deaths, some people appear to be resorting to other methods for managing the remains of their loved ones burning the deceased in the streets. In a video circulating online, a wooden casket is on fire in a rural region of China. It's unknown if the deceased died of COVID-19. In recent weeks, other clips shared to Chinese social media capture people burning other related objects. This video is believed to be from Shanghai and shows paper wreaths and incense papers known as joss paper ablaze. Burning them is a common Chinese funeral tradition. They are also used to commemorate the dead. Elsewhere, dozens of tents have been set up in the courtyard of a funeral home in northeastern China. They are being used to store corpses as the funeral home copes with overcrowding. What's more, another facility in northeast China installed at least four new cremation furnaces over the weekend, an apparent attempt to match demand for services. In Beijing, crematoriums are working round the clock to meet that surge in demand. A makeshift hospital there is being repurposed into a makeshift crematory to be complete with 200 cremation furnaces. Here's what one man, believed to be a worker on the site, said in a video. It's going to be turned into a crematorium. There is a shortage of crematoriums in Beijing. There are not enough furnaces. 200 furnaces will be built here. The makeshift hospital was previously used to quarantine COVID-19 patients or their close contacts. That's before Beijing rolled back its zero COVID-19 policy last month. In the clip, the man explains that the area where hospital staff lived was being cleaned out and would be instead used by crematory staff and relatives of the deceased. Cremation equipment is already on site. China is still facing a major outbreak across the country. On Monday, a local health department in central China's Henan province said that as of January 6th, about 90 percent of the province was infected with COVID-19. That means over 88 million people are sickened. That's about the same as the populations of California, Texas and Florida combined, the three most populous U.S. states. It's the first time since China lifted lockdowns that an official health department admitted the outbreak has reached this scale. Likewise, Wu Zunyou, the chief epidemiologist of China's Communist Party, admitted over the weekend that when the number of COVID-19 cases in China reached a certain scale, it becomes possible for new mutant strains to emerge. A short-lived obituary giving an unexpected glimpse into the true nature of China's organ trafficking market and sparking heated speculations. This followed by another ministerial-level official dying in Beijing amid the COVID-19 outbreak. 
NTD's Xiaohua Li has the story. Over the years, he had struggled with diseases and had many organs replaced in his body. He once joked that many components are not his own anymore. That's what gave goosebumps to a number of Chinese internet users last Tuesday, written in an online obituary by a Chinese Communist Party official to commemorate Gao Zhenxiang, a former commissioner of China's Federation of Literary and Art Circle who died early last month. But the news of his death was only made public near a month later, without mentioning the cause of his death. China's internet censors immediately took down the obituary. But speculations about Gao's alleged extensive organ transplant history are heating up. It has long been heard officials replace organs and blood. Whose organs were they? It's widely known in China that senior CCP officials enjoy certain privileges. But it's the first time a CCP official has been revealed as having access to multiple matching organs, each of which could cost someone's life. China affairs analyst Tang Jingyuan calls organ transplantation a welfare within the ranks of high-level CCP officials. We simply calculate what is the total number of officials above the ministerial level in the CCP system including those who are retired. Then such a large number of people, if they can enjoy such treatment and they can do it more than once, it will inevitably bring a problem. Where does such large organ supply come from? He asked that if there's no large secret pool of live human bodies within the CCP system, officials simply couldn't enjoy such so-called benefits. This matter is actually a taboo for the CCP, especially about organs transplanted to high-ranking officials. When the forced organ harvesting of Falun Gong practitioners was first revealed in 2006, questions were raised regarding organ transplant abuses by the regime. For decades, China has been accused of harvesting the organs of its citizens by force. The victims are killed in the process, and their organs are used in transplant operations, generating billions of dollars. China is doing somewhere between 60 and 100,000 transplants per year in their country, and they're not reporting them. And again, I think this isn't just a problem of ethics. This is a problem of bad medicine. A latecomer to the field, China currently has the second largest transplant program in the world after the U.S., but without a viable organ donation or distribution system. In the 2020 China Tribunal judgment, it said Falun Gong practitioners have been one and probably the main source of organ supply. Then they're essentially killed on demand for their organs. So somebody that has had, again, multiple organ transplants that lives to 90, that has had those transplants anywhere in the last 20 years, the likelihood is uh, this official received those organs uh, from the on-demand killing of, of, of innocent life. The longevity of senior party members have long been a subject of curiosity in China. But Hong He says as the virus rages in China, greater longevity saw its limits, even with multiple transplants. Around mid-November, there was an outbreak in a hospital in Beijing. These people have long been hospitalized there, have intensive care units and special people to take care of them. But when the virus broke out in the hospital, their advantage of being protected away from the society now becomes a disadvantage. Patients that, that have a transplant that end up in the hospital, um, as high as 28% of those patients will die uh, uh, from uh, COVID or from the viral illness. 
In a post by the American Lung Association, people with compromised immune systems are at higher risk for severe COVID-19, even if they get vaccinated. Those taking immunosuppressants for preventing organ transplant injection are considered immunocompromised. Xiaohua Li, NTD News. Beijing is hitting back at South Korea and Japan over COVID-19 testing requirements for travelers from China. For now, Japanese and South Korean nationals would not get short-term visas to China. That's according to China's embassy in South Korea and several Japanese travel agencies. This comes after countries around the globe imposed travel restrictions as COVID-19 infections in China soar. Travelers from China must present a negative COVID-19 test before boarding a plane or get tested after touching down. South Korea took it a step further. The country suspended short-term visa applications from its consulates in China until the end of the month. Beijing said it would adjust visa suspension if South Korea cancels its entry restrictions on China. What would happen if China decided to invade Taiwan? And what would a war with China mean for the U.S.? A leading think tank in D.C. released a report on war game simulations of that scenario. Here's what they found. D.C.-based think tank Center for Strategic and International Studies designed a war game of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. It modeled an amphibious invasion of Taiwan in 2026 and ran it 24 times in a variety of scenarios. Here is what they found. Under most circumstances, China is unlikely to succeed in its op operational objectives uh, or to occupy Taipei. And second, the costs of war would be high for all involved, as Mark said, uh, certainly to include the United States. Uh, starting on the operational piece, uh, the challenges confronting China in an invasion are se severe. The report highlights that Taiwan is likely to maintain its autonomy in the case of a Chinese invasion. But four critical conditions must be met. First, Taiwan must resist. If Taiwan capitulates immediately upon invasion, like Denmark or Thailand did in World War II, then there's nothing that the U.S. can do in order to uh, reverse that capitulation. Second, the U.S. must quickly commit its own forces to direct combat operations against China. If there's no U.S. commitment whatsoever, we estimate that it would take about two or three months for China to conquer Taiwan if Taiwan resisted to the best of its abilities, but that that success on China's part is inevitable. The other two conditions are that the U.S. must conduct operations from its bases in Japan and the U.S. must have sufficient anti-ship munitions. And in terms of the losses, the report says the U.S. and allies would lose dozens of ships, hundreds of aircraft, and tens of thousands of service members. The report says such an invasion would also bring heavy losses to China, and failure to occupy Taiwan might destabilize the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. Retired U.S. Air Force General David Deptula said the U.S. needs to get creative in deterring a Chinese invasion. I believe it's extraordinarily unwise from a deterrent perspective to yield sanctuary to the PRC in advance of any contact, conflict by declaring that U.S. attacks against China's mainland would be off the table. The think tank says that based on their report, the U.S. should strengthen deterrence immediately. For China's tech sector, the new year is off to a promising start. The Nasdaq Golden Dragon China Index jumped 13 percent in just the first two days of trading in 2023. 
The index looks at China-based firms listed on the U.S. market. And the boost marks its best record yet for early New Year trading. Some of the top performing firms are Alibaba, JD.com and Pinduoduo. Together, their U.S.-listed shares gained $53 billion in market value Wednesday. That dollar figure rises to nearly $70 billion for the week. Beijing's regulators are expected to relax their clampdown on tech companies in 2023 and work to boost the pandemic-hit Chinese economy. That's good news for China's tech firms, which have been the main target of strict controls since late 2020. Likewise, the Nasdaq Golden Dragon China Index sank 46 percent in 2021 and 25 percent in 2022. As Chinese firms enjoy the New Year surge, major U.S. indexes stayed flat the past two sessions. Even though China is moving away from its zero COVID-19 policy, European investors may not change their minds on decoupling and shipping supply chains anytime soon. That's according to Chris Humphrey, executive director of the EU Asian Business Council. The organization represents European businesses in Southeast Asia. Humphrey said Southeast Asia has seen an increase in foreign direct investment, and he doesn't see China's recent moves changing that trend. Humphrey added that for many businesses, China is now being run as a discrete market, whereas Southeast Asia is being seen as part of a larger global or Asian operation. EU member states poured over $26 billion in Southeast Asia last year. That marks an over 40 percent increase from the year before. A self-confessed spy who publicly defected from Beijing has been denied the right to stay in Australia. In 2019, Wang Liqiang spilled Beijing's espionage secrets on Australian primetime national TV. Four years later, he's now facing deportation back to China. To tell the truth, inside of me, I am extremely frightened. Wang claims to have been a Beijing-sponsored secret agent who undertook undercover spy work in Hong Kong, Taiwan and Australia. Beijing dismissed his claims as false and called him a convicted criminal. Wang was allegedly threatened that he could be sent back to China and killed if he didn't retract his story. Over the weekend, an Australian court rejected Wang's asylum application. That's over alleged fraud committed against Sydney businessman Philip Shu. This leaves Wang open to deportation, despite the tribunal admitting he's in danger. The denial of Wang's asylum comes after Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong visited China a few weeks ago. She expressed wishes to restart Australian exports to Beijing after years of diplomatic tensions between the two. Beijing is looking to repair its relationship down under. China's foreign ministry said Tuesday it hopes Australia would meet China in the same direction, calling the two economies highly complementary. We hope that the Australian side will meet China in the same direction and make efforts towards the goal of mutual benefit and win-win results so as to promote the rebuilding of mutual trust between the two countries and bring the relationship between the two countries back on track. Canberra and Beijing have been on the outs for several years. The nations are looking to ease tensions. But Australia is waiting for China to lift trade blocks on a dozen Australian exports to further encourage the relations repair. China's ambassador to Australia, Xiao Qian, said he hopes a solution can be found for the cases and possible release of two Australians detained in China.
On the other hand, he ramped up criticism of the AUKUS security deal, a pact between Australia, the U.S. and the U.K. Australia has refused to back away from the agreement. Xiao hinted that decision may put financial burden on Australian taxpayers. Russia may want to buy back an aircraft carrier that Ukraine sold to China over two decades ago. The proposal was made by a leader of Russia's pro-war Liberal Democratic Party. Let's zoom in. He suggested buying the warship back and putting it into service. This Chinese aircraft carrier is known as the Liaoning. The ship was supposed to become the mainstay of the Soviet Union, but after its collapse, Ukraine, as part of the Soviet Union, was anxious to dispose of the unfinished aircraft carrier. In 1996, the Chinese Communist Party began planning to purchase the carrier under the name of an international businessman, claiming it would be converted into a casino. That dispelled Western suspicions of Chinese military movements at the time. The Liaoning was commissioned in 2012 and is now the mainstay of the People's Liberation Army Navy. Coming up, Japan, China, and the U.S. How are tensions playing out between them in the Indo-Pacific? And is there a way to deter the Chinese Communist Party's aggression? But if you can get this right and you combine the two militaries, uh, that will cause the Chinese no end of trouble. And it will will be well received by most other countries and the nation. We sat down with Grant Newsham, Senior Fellow at the Center for Security Policy for Insight. His comments and more after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A triangle of power between Japan, China, and the U.S. China is ramping up aggression toward Japan. A Chinese military drone was found around two of the country's islands. On the other side, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida is set to meet with President Biden this week at the White House. We spoke to Grant Newsham, senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, about what we can take away from the situation. It's China basically telling Japan, you know, we're coming and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, China also sent out uh, an aircraft carrier and supporting ships uh, into the, through basically through those uh, the southern straits in the well in the, the Ryukyu Islands, southern Japan, sent it through through there into the Philippine Sea, and then sort of moved it out towards Guam a bit. And they did you know aircraft uh, operations and other sort of naval exercises. And once again, when you send an aircraft carrier out with some pretty potent uh, uh, ships in support. Uh, this is a message. There is, it's as much a political uh, statement as it is uh, an effort to improve operational capabilities. And it is telling Japan that we're not backing down. And this, too, is a steady trend in the, sort of the, the development and the application of pressure by the Chinese against Japan. And th- it just gets worse and worse every year. And this has, of course, woken the Japanese up pretty much uh, to the point they're trying to improve their defenses and to a degree their ability to operate with us. But it is late in the day. Uh, but what you see the, Jap- the Chinese doing, uh, you've, and you compare it to, say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, they've come a lawfully, awful long way. And it appears as though they had another aircraft carrier operating down in the South China Sea. 
Uh, so we, we do face a, just an uh, unmistakable threat. With this uh, Kashida and Biden meeting, what can we read into that? Is it closer ties between us or what can we glean? I think it's a, a still it's a close tie. The, the relationship is is pretty solid. It's a relationship of necessity. Uh, without us, the Japanese have no chance. But without the Japanese, we would have a very difficult time holding our own in Asia. This is a relationship that is uh, founded on mutual ne mutual need uh, at the moment. And keep in mind, we're both sort of free, democratic, consensually governed nations where uh, where the the law still applies. Uh, and that alone is reason enough for us to band together. Uh, but this is, uh, uh, so it's not surprising to see uh, Kishida going to Washington, and he'll be well received. Uh, but the, the challenge is to turn this relationship into a, as to a really good sort of military alliance, because it hasn't been uh, until now, until well, it hasn't been. Ever now, people are sort of admitting that it's got its real shortcomings, and by shortcomings, it's the, basically the Japanese military, except for the navy, is not able to fight a war. Uh, they didn't think they would ever have to, and then in any event, the Americans would take care of everything, and as a result, you have a Japanese military which is sort of shrunken, misshapen, underfunded, and is really not able to fight. Uh, it realizes it needs to get better, and. Uh, they're going to try. Um, but that's, that is the situation now. And the Americans and the Japanese, once again, except for the two navies, uh, have pretty much been unable to operate together. And if you are friends and allies, you, you'd think that the U.S. forces and the Japanese forces would really be able to integrate and conduct a joint defense of Japan and the surrounding areas, but they're not able to do that. Um, and you'd say 60-plus years of an alliance, and they still can't do that? But here we are, where we're finally realizing that the U.S.-Japan military relationship is not what it has been uh, billed to be. Uh, but if you can get this right and you combine the two militaries, uh, that will cause the Chinese no end of trouble. And it will and it will be well received by most other countries in the nation. And it seems with, say, last year, there's a big focus on China and Russia announcing their no-limits friendship. We're seeing closer ties between them. We're seeing activity on the Indian border between India and China, too. And then, of course, Taiwan. With all these areas, what are the biggest parts of this to look out for this year? Well, it's always good to look at the whole map. Things in Ukraine have an effect on uh, events in Asia, and not least in when China does the, the risk calculations or... Taiwan sees what might work, what might not work. Um, and also the distraction of the United States. You know, I think you had one of a very senior U.S. officials say the other day um, that, well, we can't handle two, two wars at once. You know, and I think it, was, it might have been Secretary Blinken who said that. And that's really not what you want to say. Because uh, if you're busy in Ukraine, well, you're not busy. You're not uh, able to handle something in Asia. Um, but at the same time, you mentioned the Indian border, that a move, any sort of a move or demonstration up there is a good way to once again to distract people uh, from your main objective. So if Taiwan's your main objective, cause some trouble on the Indian border. You just say you just have to move and shoot a little bit, and that's going to get a lot of attention. Have the North Koreans just do something, you know, fire a missile into Seoul uh, or something that, that frightens people and 
attracts attention there. Have the Russians move their navy around uh, up north, and then that too is going to get people's attention. Say the Iranians do something in the Persian Gulf, close the Straits of Hormuz, or just once again a missile into oh, somewhere, Saudi Arabia, for example, and that's going to get you know everyone uh, spun up, and then. What you if you if you know say you're China and you go after Taiwan well there's all this other activity going on, and how well is the West or the Americans going to be able to respond uh, to that? Uh, but it's important to say to look at the whole map, not just the military parts of it, but also the uh, the, the economic angles of it, the political parts of it, and see where the where the who's doing better, where. You know, is Beijing doing better than us or are the free nations or vice versa? Are there places where they're slipping and we've got some opportunity? How are we taking advantage of those opportunities? Uh, those are so it's uh, almost like a multidimensional chess game in a way, which um, is uh, can get kind of confusing. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, Send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.